Good morning, Mission View. It's so good to be here at God's house. And, and during the week, it's just an auditorium. But when we gather together and we worship together and we lift our hands and we lift our hearts in song, it's so good that we can turn this place into a sanctuary of God that, that we can uh, lift, uh, lift our hearts up together. And really, the sanctuary is us. The sanctuary is where God lives within each and every one of us. Uh, this has been an exciting weekend. At my house, we've had nearly 40 women invade our space, which was awesome. I love more the merrier at my house. You can all come over sometime. I don't mind. My wife might, but uh, not at all once. But it was great to have the if gathering at our place and just to see women's hearts stirred for God and motivated and, and to, to bring us along really with the mission that we have that we want to make disciples. That's what this ministry is about. We want to make disciples that have an intimacy with God, that have a community with each other and an influence in the world. But we can't even think about community and influence unless we really have a deep, passionate love for God. And that's why that was such an important thing for the, the women of faith in our ministry that were able to come. We're just so thankful. If you couldn't come, we understand. Life is busy. But for those that were able to, it was uh, just awesome to see you and for you to, you to be a part of our ministry. Once in a while, I run into somebody, maybe they're newer to Mission View, and they know that I'm the pastor of the church, but occasionally they'll ask me what I do for a living. And uh, sometimes it's like, okay, I understand you may not realize, because they think, because you know, I, I preach on Sunday, that's what I do on Sunday, but what do I do throughout the, the rest of the week? Now, for those of you that might be wondering that, I just want you to know that I am in the people business. I am here all the time. I work Monday through Friday working on the message and, and invest my time in that way. But I want you to know, in every job, there's always ups and there's always downs. There's always frustrations and there's always joy. Now, I want you to know what my greatest frustration in my job is. My greatest frustration is people. Now, that may not sound really the political thing to say as a pastor, but I want you to know the opposite side. The opposite, the greatest joy in my life is, well, you guessed it people. See, it's not that I don't like people. It's just that there comes a place of frustration sometimes when you see individuals that are kind of stuck in neutral, when they're kind of maybe stuck on their own sin or they're stuck on their own selfishness or there's something in their life and it's almost as if they've been sidelined and in a way they, they, they get in the way of God revolutionizing their life. They get in the way of God revolutionizing their marriage or revolutionizing them and their influence in the workplace or their witness in, in, in how God wants to use them. And sometimes individuals, because they get stuck in this rut, they get it in their mind. Maybe it's a wrong view of the scriptures or they're not just stepping out in faith. They get three words stuck in their mind. I cannot. I cannot. 
I cannot really share Christ because I'm just not equipped to do so. I cannot really work on this marriage because it's doomed for failure. I cannot really be an influence in my workplace because, well, I, I am filled with so many flaws. God can't use me. I've made so many mistakes. I cannot. And what happens sometimes in the body of Christ is that we get this mindset in our hearts and in our minds and we become sidelined. We are, in a sense, put on the injured reserve list for God's army and we're not used. And it's a shame because God wants to use you, flaws and all. He always does. Now, I wonder, how about you? Do you see yourself as a flawed individual? I want to do a little survey this morning. I would like you to raise your hand if you're sitting next to a flawed person. Okay, just, it's okay. I thought so. I thought so. Well, I want you to let the person next to you know. <laughs> I want you to let the person next to you know that there's good news today. Because God's word is going to give us four examples of flawed individuals that God used despite all of their flaws, that God used them in a pretty powerful way, enough for God to put them in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask God to evaluate our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we know that we are flawed individuals. We know that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in the midst of our flaws and all of our failures for us not to be sidelined anymore, for us not to just sit back and wait. But, Lord, help us to see that your delight throughout history has always been to take people where they're at and to use us in a miraculous way. And maybe it's simply in having an impact in one person's life. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your design of what you want for us. And I pray for your guidance and direction in this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want you to know we're going to be looking at four people, but this will not be an exhaustive study because we would be here all day. So we're going to be looking at snapshots of four individuals, and we're really looking at two things, their flaws and their faith, their flaws and their faith. So we're going to be looking back and forth at each of these four individuals. Now, the first person that we're going to start study, case study number one, is I call her the beautiful wife who laughed at God. Now, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about Sarah. When she was told at the age of 90 that she was going to have a child, what did she do? She did what I would do as well. I would laugh. I would have a hard time believing it, but we're going to look at this woman. Now, I want you to know that Sarah was a person that had flaws. Now, last week, or two weeks ago, we saw a few of those flaws in Abraham and Sarah when we saw that they traveled from Ur to, to Haran to finally the promised land of Canaan, and we saw some of their flaws amongst the journey. But I'd like to point out just a few of those flaws and highlight them this morning. Now, we'll get to Hebrews 11 in a minute, but let's get a little background into her flaws. What I first see is a flawed partnership in the relationship of Sarah and Abraham. 
Now, this is what you need to know about Sarah. Sarah was a drop-dead gorgeous woman. It is very clear if you read Genesis that she was an absolutely beautiful woman. She was an absolute looker. Her dark complexion and distinct Middle Eastern features caused men to turn their heads. Now, we know this because there were two instances in the scriptures, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, where this happened. Now, in the first episode, Sarah was with her husband going into Egypt during a time of famine. And at the age of 75, she became a bartering tool for for her husband. Now, just as a side note, what an awesome thing to be considered a drop-dead gorgeous woman at the age of 75. Now, I want you to know that my wife is well on her way. She's not near 75, but she has a great trajectory by 75, hot as anything. Anyways, that's my, that's my prediction. Anyway, <laughs> I'll stop there so I don't get in trouble. Uh, we're told in Genesis chapter 12 this statement. It says, as he was about to enter Egypt, this is talking about Abraham, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. This man was hiding behind his wife and putting her at risk. Now, we won't deal with, we'll deal with Abraham a little bit later, but let's talk about Sarah. Sarah goes along with this stupid plan. I would expect Sarah to raise some objection. She might say, Abraham, this is a great plan if you don't care if I'm sexually abused. She doesn't raise an objection. She doesn't have a rebuttal. She doesn't have a bit of fight in here. Now, I just want you to know that this is where Sarah and my wife part ways. My wife is a fighter, and I know she would have probably said something to me if I put her in that predicament, but here's what she does. She doesn't say anything, and then 14 years later, the same situation. She's approaching 90. She's still a good-looking woman, and Abraham is going to put her in the same exact situation, but here's why it was worse the second time. The second time, God had just come to him and said, Hey, Abraham, this time next year, your wife is going to be with child. And so it was right after that prediction, he barters her in a foreign land, and he says, Hey, honey, say that you're my sister. And he puts her moral integrity in danger, but he also puts a a risk of the permanent doubt on Isaac's parentage as well as the promise of him becoming the father of a great nation this was very very stupid of abraham and yet he does this and sarah goes along with it i see that as a flaw what's beautiful is that god doesn't allow anything to happen here let's go on to the second problem it was dealing with the flawed body now the flawed body of sarah you say well she was a beautiful woman how could she have a flawed body well there was something wrong in her and i say flawed body because that's probably how sarah saw herself in fact i know she saw herself as having a flawed body because she was not able to conceive according to the center of 
World Health, 74 million women, 11.9% of women in our world today struggle with infertility. It was a big issue then, and it's a big issue here. Now, please understand that this was a gut-wrenching. It's a gut-wrenching thing that husbands and wives, they plead before God. And this is certainly what Sarah has done, so I understand that. And I want it to be clear that it wasn't her physical uh, uh, afflictions that she had that was sinful. It's what she did with the, sinful, with the physical affliction. What she did is she took matters into her own hands. And what we know, and it was pr- pretty popular in that, in that culture of that day, is she gave her husband to a surrogate wife named Hagar. And so she did this so that she could conceive children through Hagar. Now, though God had promised to make a great nation out of Abraham, Sarah saw it doesn't look like this is going to happen anytime soon. So it looks like God needs a little help from me. And so that's exactly what she does. And for those of you that know the story or don't know the story, the outcome was horrible. It had terrible ramifications. It caused jealousy. It caused anger. It caused resentment to set in to this marriage. Now you look at that and you say, man, there's flaws all over the place with Sarah. Where's her faith? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. Look at Hebrews 11. Verse 11 and 12, it says this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, she considered him, God, faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, the faith that Sarah is credited for is that she eventually believed. Do you realize that God knows who we are? Do you realize he knows that we're sometimes very, very slow to belief? We are slow because we see our life circumstances and we see it being impossible. And we think, how in the world is God going to change the situation? I feel that way in certain areas of my life right now. And I constantly say, God, help me with my unbelief. Help me to believe. Are you there? See, this is where Sarah was, but she was commended that she did have faith. And let me give you a faith principle here that I think is so important. And that is this. Our faith trumps our flaws. It trumps our flaws. We already read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it is what? impossible to please God. Say that with me. It is impossible to please God. I want to hear it now. It is impossible to please God. Friends, God wants faith in us. And faith is simply believing if God says it, that we are willing to do it and we are willing to trust what he says in our life. He gives us a lot of instruction here. And he tells us to, pro- to trust him in all of our circumstances, that we are to lift up those that we love around us. When we see it's an impossible circumstance, he says, believe in me. Do you realize that God knows your framework? 
Psalm 103 says that he knows that we, how we are formed because he formed us and that we are but dust. He knows that about you and I. He knows it. It says in Psalm 90 that he knows even the secret sins that are in our life. He knows it. According to Psalm 139, there's no place that we can go from God in the midst of our flaws. We can't go to the heights. We can't go to the depths. There's nowhere that we can flee where we get away from God because he's always present because he's sovereign. Here's the deal. Faith believes God can forgive flawed people and use us for his glory. See, I'm talking to some who are not willing to step out in faith. You made mistakes, and you're not willing to step out in faith. And you're kind of like in this cage, a prison. But here's the deal. When you gave your life to Christ, the shed blood of Christ and the victory of the resurrection gave the key that unlocked all the chains, and the chains are gone, and the prison door is open. And we may stand inside the prison door, but all we have to do is step out because we're not bound. And what God wants is for us to be a people of faith. He wants to step out, and he wants us to realize that our faith will trump all of our flaws. Well, let's take a look at the next person. The next person is Sarah's husband, Abraham. Now, we've already covered one lesson on him, but we're coming back to him because he's mentioned again in the Hebrews 11. And here's what I want you to see here. I want you to know that he is a flawed individual. But we don't have to camp out there because we've already seen the flaws. We know that he put his, his wife at risk twice. We know that he went along with the Hagar thing. So we know his flaws. At times he made some terrible, terrible, drastic mistakes. But what's interesting is Hebrews 11 goes on and tells of one of the great things of faith Abraham did. Let's look at his faith in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. It says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Now think about that. God had promised that through his son he would make a great nation. And now he's offering him up as a sacrifice. Of whom he said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, in order for you to get the full picture, I want to encourage you this week to read Genesis chapter 22. It would be great for the community groups to talk about each of these faith principles. I'm going to give three more. There's four total. But this is a great passage to camp out and go a little bit deeper in. But let me give you the cliff notes. Sarah has had her child, Isaac. Fast forward about 13 years, and all of a sudden, God is going to test Abraham, and he says this to Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, Abraham, I'm testing you. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now this wasn't a symbolic thing. In Abraham's mind it meant the death of his son. And that he would become a burnt offering before God. He says on one of the mountains I'm about to tell you. Now what's amazing about Abraham here. Is that you don't see a hint of doubt. 
You don't see any complaints. You don't see any objections from Abraham. Instead, what you see is faith. Faith is, God says it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk that road. Now, he goes on this journey, and he goes along with his son and two servants. And we see his faith in Genesis 22 when Abraham talks to his servants. And he says this. He says, you guys stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then, here it is, here's the faith, we will what? We will return. We will come back. Now, he wasn't lying to them. He, in his mind and his heart, totally believed that he and his son would return even after he sacrificed his son. And what we're told in Hebrews 11 is that he believed that God was going to resurrect his son. Resurrection wasn't a common theme in the Old Testament at this point. This was his faith in knowing that that's what God had to do in order to fulfill his promise. You see, Abraham wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. He wasn't going to doubt again. He doubted before, and it resulted in him uh, having a son with Hagar, and that was a mess. He, did, he doubted God, and he wasn't going to do it again. And he knew that God had made a promise to him. And what was that promise? Through you, I will make a great nation. Through you, I will make your name great. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham had it in his mind, and he knew it had to happen through his son. So he believed that God would resurrect his son. And so he takes his son, he binds him up, he puts him on a pile of wood, and he is about to take the knife to slay his son, and God has to yell out to him two times, Abraham, Abraham, before he caught his attention and stopped him. Now, just a word about Isaac. It says a lot about his trust in his father. My boys at the age of 13, bound up, on wood, see the knife come out, I'm out of here. <laughs> now, we could talk and spend some time on the ethics of this situation. It's interesting reading commentaries on this. And we could talk about the apparent cruelty of the request. But here's what you need to know about God. God is the author of life. And he's the author of death as well. He takes life. He gives life. He does both. Now, we're not allowed to do that, but he is allowed to do that. But here's the more important thing. More importantly, God uses this situation to test Abraham's faith and, and to paint a picture of the future for us. See, he was asking Abraham to do symbolically. He wasn't going to allow him to do it. He was going to do symbolic what God would do on that very mountain centuries later because Mount Moriah would be the place of Calvary. It would be the place that his son, his very own son, the son that he loved, actually wouldn't go there in a false pretense of death. No, no, no. He would die. He would go to the cross. God, the Father, would say, send his son for the sacrifice. And this is the picture that God was painting. And God honored the faith of Abraham. And it was only going to be through what God would eventually do that all the nations of the earth would actually be blessed through Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture. 
Here's the second faith principle. The second faith principle is this. Our faith can and will be tested by God. Now, please understand that. Our faith can and will be tested by God. And if we are honest, this faith principle is the one that is difficult for all of us to accept. Church, God will allow you to be tested. He will allow you to be tested. He definitely will. Have you gone through a test? I have. Recently, I feel like I've been through a test, and it's for my good. We're told in the book of James that our testing is definite. It says, it says when you go through testings, when you go through testings, not only do, is it a certain thing that is going to happen, but it also tells us in the book of James that it has a purpose, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God wants to produce something in the testing that you're going through. We're told in the book of James that testing is different than temptation. Temptation is not from God, but testing is from God. And God does it to develop our character. 1 Peter chapter 1 says the testings that we go through, yes, they're painful, but they're temporary. So why does God test us? The answer is for our good and to strengthen us. How many of you have ever run a marathon? Anybody in here? That crazy? Okay, handful of people ran, have run a marathon. Or maybe it's just a really, really hard workout. But if you ran a, mar a marathon or you're in the midst of this intense workout, have you ever gotten to the middle of it and said, this is, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Why would I do this? Why would I subject my body to this? I just want to throw in the towel. And some people do give up, but some people say, no, I'm going to push through it. I'm going to push through it. I'm going to finish the race. I'm going to finish the routine. And you do, and you feel strengthened. Maybe after a couple days, but you feel strengthened. See, that's what God wants to do in us. And yet I'm speaking to some that you might be at the place where you're ready to give up. Don't do that. Don't give up. Is God faithful? All the time. Is he looking after you? All the time. Is he trying to teach you? All the time. Our faith can and will be tested. Let's move on to the third character. I call this person, or we're looking at Isaac, but I title him the passive son who carries on the family heritage. Now let's look at Isaac. Isaac here, here's the cliff notes. He's a mama's boy. That's what you need to know about him. He's a mama's boy. He is passive. He's a settler. He is a maintainer. He's not an adventure seeker at all. He is the polar opposite of his father, Abraham. He is just a mama's boy. We know he's a mama's boy because after, after he becomes an adult and mom dies, it takes Four years for him to get over his mother's death. It was only after he met Rebecca that he says, man, I can finally be comforted after mama's death. That's after four years. Now, mom, I love you and everything, but it's going to be quicker than four years, okay? I will remember you. But he was a mama's boy. And then 26 years later, after he's comforted, God gives Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, uh, uh, twin boys. This is after they prayed because she was barren as well. 
gave them Esau and Jacob. And so what's interesting, they're just doing life. A famine comes in the land, which must have been a common thing that happened. It happened to his father. And so God says, hey, listen, go to the land of the Philistines. I'm going to protect you. I'll take care of you, uh, Isaac. I just want you to take your wife and your family down there, and you just trust me. And then when he gets into the land, he sees that he's fearful because his wife is beautiful as well. And he says to his wife, hey, listen, I... I'm a little concerned here. Would you say that you're my sister? Sound familiar? Like father, like son, the sins of the, the father are realized in Isaac. So this is what happens. The king of that land is like, sister, huh? Looking out his window one day, he's seeing Isaac and Rebecca smooching. And he says, what are you doing? And the long and short of the message is that he, he was so fearful that God would bring curses upon him. He ends up blessing Isaac, and he goes off with great riches, but we see the flaws of Isaac. Later on in Isaac's life, we see that even towards the end of his life, he's a little impulsive in terms of blessing his son. He wants to bless, Je he wants to bless Esau instead of Jacob. Now, he does this, and through the wisdom, I think, of his wife, that doesn't happen. But Esau is the one who stole his, or Jacob, even though he's the one that stole his brother's birthright, Esau sold it to him impulsively for a bowl of stew. And we see that there's a heart condition in Esau that later on he would marry a Canaanite wife, but probably more importantly, God had already told Rebecca, he says, listen, there's two nations in your womb. Before the child was born, the younger will serve the, the older, or the, uh, the younger will be in charge of the older. He will be the leader. And so and out of faith, this is what Rebecca knew. And so we see Isaac making all kinds of mistakes in his life. He's going to bless the wrong son. But then we get to Hebrews 11 and something curious happens. Hebrews 11 verse 20 says this, By faith, in, uh, faith Isaac invokes future blessing on Jacob and Esau. So what is he being commended for? I don't see a whole lot of anything in Isaac. But here's the deal. The faith Isaac is commended for is his belief that God was going to fulfill his promise in making his family great and blessing all the nations of the earth. That's the one thing that Isaac did know. God was going to do something through his family, and he passed on that blessing. So this is what he's commended for. So here's our third faith principle. Our third faith principle is this. Our faith requires some tough choices. And what we see here is through Isaac's life, he had to make some tough choices. And a lot of them were wrong choices. Yeah, he made some right choices, but he had to make choices. Isaac certainly wasn't a pillar of faith. You might even make a case that Rebecca had greater faith, but he is commended here because he did pass on the promise to his kids. Church, what we need to realize is what choice are you going to make that's going to actually reflect your faith? I think he could have made a lot more faith choices. He could have made a lot more choices that would have reflected his faith. But what about us? 
We have choices every single day. Before we cast stones at Isaac, we make stupid choices all the time. Sometimes impulsive choices. Sometimes they're financial choices. Sometimes they're career choices. Sometimes they're marriage choices. And God says, no, no, no. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make choices on the basis of God's word. See, that's what we do. That's what we as believers do. We are not guided by our own, our own mentality. We're told in Proverbs, do not lean on your own what? Understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. See, we have a different metrics by which we measure our life. We measure our life by what God's word says to us, and it guides our steps. It guides our decisions. I would like to think there could have been more than one sentence given to Isaac, but he was commended for this one thing. Let's cover our last one, and we'll close here. The last person is Jacob. I call him the schemer, the scheming brother who fathered a nation. His name means schemer. We see that Jacob worked every angle and he used trickery to do it. We see that he did this in getting the birthright from his brother. He was a feisty rascal. That's what he was and he stole his birth, the birthright of his brother. He also had a father-in-law that he constantly shared deceptive things with. But it's, it didn't really matter because Laban didn't have much of a conscience either because he was equally deceptive with him, with Jacob. In fact, in one instance, he gave his daughter Leah to Jacob instead of Rachel, which he thought is the one he was marrying. Now, I don't know how this happens. I don't know. But after the honeymoon night was over, he wakes up and looks at the ugly sister and says, what happened here? So he was tricking him, Laban tricked him as well. We see that he made all kinds of bad decisions that reflected on his relationships, and they were struggles. He struggled with his wives, he struggled with his children, he struggled with his father-in-law, he struggled, 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 struggled. Why? Because he lived a life of the trickery and deception and working the angles and trying to make it happen in his life and trying to force the issue. That's what he did. But then he comes to one unbelievable struggle that broke him. And you read it in Genesis 32, he's all by himself. And all of a sudden, a man comes and he starts wrestling with them. Now, I don't know why and how they got into this wrestling match. But what we know is that this was a theophany. It was an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And he is, Jacob is wrestling with Christ in the Old Testament. And he's not winning He's not, he's not dominating, and he says, I, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. But then what Jesus does is he touches his hip and puts it out of socket, and he has a permanent disability from that day forward. And what happens in that whole, that whole wrestling match is that Jacob becomes a broken man. So much so that God changes his name from schemer to Israel the one who fought with God. And what's interesting is from that moment on, we see that Jacob, now Israel, starts to live by faith. 
And we see certain things that he does in his life. He starts building altars to God. He destroys the idols that were built by his family. And he says, we got to get rid of that. And at the very end of his life, at the very end of his life, he blesses his son Joseph, his children. And it says he did it with a heart of worship. And look what Hebrews 11 says in verse 21. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, Blessed, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in what? In worship over the head of his staff. You know what's interesting? Is that when God breaks us, when we move from self-centered, we move to God-centered. We move from self-worship to God-worship. And that's what God wants to do in each and every one of our life. And here's our faith principle. Our faith will wrestle with God. I don't know about you, but I wrestle. I wrestle with God and there is a brokenness that sometimes I have to ask for. And when God does it, I realize I become a worshiper, a deeper, intimate worshiper with God. Sometimes I just get caught off in my own path, in my own thinking, and God brings me back and he says, Steve, focus on me. Here's what I want. Come, be isolated with me. Hear me, hear my heart. Come to me. And when I do, and I'm finally still, and that's my problem, I'm not still. I'm just honest with you. I'm not still. How about you? But when I get still, I realize it's all about God. The first line of this song we're going to sing, Give Me Faith, says, I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. As your pastor, I'm praying for an awakening in our body. I have been praying that for about six months, that there would be an awakening, a softening, and an energy that would be in our hearts to worship God. And I think it will be reflected here in this auditorium. When we come in, we sing with our full hearts and we engage in worship. Whether we know the song or not, we just engage and that God would develop a deep passion. I hear over and over again from individuals who say, I just want to have a deeper passion for God. And that's what I'm praying, because that's what you're requesting, and that's what I sense that we need. In this song, let's engage in worship, and let's mean every word.